0: Welcome in the name of the Lord to the house of the Lord, to God's people. We are here to give thanks to God and to ask for God's help. And so, if you're able, please stand to sing song number 560 for the beauty of the earth. Number 560. announcements this morning and I've got four that I'm going to highlight. The first one is that Russell's office hours are every afternoon Tuesday to Friday. So for all the things that the bulletin says, please talk to Russell. Please talk to Russell. That's when you can find him at the church. The second one is about something new in the backyard and we have Lyndon and company to thank for that. It's a new play structure, a climbing geodome, is that what you call it? Right on. It was kind of funny. During the week, we looked out at it and said, hey, look at that. It's so it's so nice and low. Nobody will get hurt falling off that. And then this morning, I look out, and it's a lot higher. <laughs> it got built up during the week, so thanks for doing that. What you'll find in the back today is the sign-up sheets for Thanksgiving Supper, which is next Sunday evening at 5.30. So sign up for the cleanup, the the setup, and all that sort of thing. But everybody who can is asked to bring a dessert, and everybody is invited to invite others to come join us. And finally, today, 3 o'clock, care home service, you're also welcome to join us there. 3 p.m. Now, before we do our call to worship and continue singing, I want to tell you about the next song. So Matt is going to put it up on the screen already. And if you want to look in your hymn book, it's number 51. And it's a bit of a story song. There are three verses. And what I want you to notice is that it's all about the story of Israel leaving Egypt and going to the promised land. You wouldn't maybe think of it just when you sing a song that's kind of a poem, but that's the story that it's referencing. The first two verses, we could say, are about life. And the third verse is about death and heaven. So let's start with the first verse. The barren land, that's a reference to the wilderness that Israel walked through. Bread of heaven, that's a reference to manna. God gave them every morning something on the ground that they could pick up and eat because there's no stores, there's no fields. You can't carry along enough bread for a month-long journey or more. So every morning there was manna, bread of heaven. All right, verse 2. The crystal fountain, that I think is a reference to getting water from the rock. Again, you can't carry enough water for this long journey, but God told Moses at one point when they didn't have any water, hit the rock with your stick and water will come out. And that's what happened. And then the fire and cloudy pillar. Wasn't it amazing how God guided his people through the wilderness there were no roads and apparently it seemed like no clear destination but during the day there was a cloud a pillar of cloud that the people just followed around because it moved and at night well if it was just a cloud you wouldn't be able to see it but it was a pillar of fire so you could follow it and it provided light that was pretty amazing And then in the third verse, getting to the Jordan River and crossing over into the promised land, and that for us is kind of an analogy of going through death to get to heaven. Now, again, this is poetic language. When I tread the verge of Jordan, tread, that's like walking, the verge, oh, we're just on the verge. We're almost there. This is the very edge of the Jordan River. Bid my anxious fears subside. To bid is to ask. It's like at an auction when, you, when you're bidding. Hey, Yeah, I'll take that, please. Ask or, or uh, tell my anxious fears to subside, to go down. Bear me through the swelling current. Carry me through the, the fast-moving water. And land me safe on Canaan's side. Once we get to the other side of the river, then whew, we're safe on dry land again. So now you know what you're about to sing. But first, let's do our call to worship. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it.
1: For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters.
0: Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in.
1: Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty, he is the King of glory.
0: Let's sing, Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. We come to you this morning acknowledging that you are great and good and that we are not so much. As the psalmist asks, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? We acknowledge that we are not holy, just like the people of Israel stood before your holy mountain waiting for the Ten Commandments to come down and recognizing that they were not even allowed to touch that mountain because they they were not holy enough. And yet you assure us through the psalmist that the one who has clean hands and a pure heart and who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god may come near And so we confess that we are weak, but that you have cleaned our hands and given us pure hearts, and that is what we desire. And let's sing, Lord, have mercy.
2: I've forgotten the words that you have spoken promises that burned within my heart have now grown dim with a doubting heart I follow the paths of earthly wisdom forgive me for my unbelief renew the fire again I have built built an an altar where where I worship things of man. I have taken journeys that have drawn me far from you. Now I am returning to your mercies ever flowing. Pardon my transgressions. Help me love you again. flowing without end, so I bow my heart before you in the goodness of your presence, your grace forever shining like a beacon in the night.
0: of assurance are from Psalm 24. Those who have a clean hands and a pure heart will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Those who do not trust in an idol or swear by a false God will be the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. In our song of assurance, he will hold me fast.
2: fearful power. i
0: for your assurance that you are holding us. We know that you provide for us throughout our lives and also as we pass into the next life. And so for the blessings and benefits of food and drink, of money and shelter, and of meaningful work to do, we give you thanks. We thank you that we can in return give money back to the work of your kingdom, and also give of our time and our efforts. So bless all of those gifts that are given this week in the offering box as well as online, and thank you for all the ways that we can serve from day to day, sometimes seen and many times unseen. But we know that you reward it all. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, What should we do with you to make the sea come down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us a- accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord had provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights.
3: Good morning. We'll go into a time of prayer. Um, there's a few things listed in the bulletin and a few things that aren't. So we want to remember to pray for peace in Israel. Uh, YFC workers Tyson Murray and Cassie Schroeder. There's a number of different ministries we'll be starting up here shortly. So we want to pray for those ministries. Uh, we want to remember to pray for uh, Betty Queering's family as they they mourn and as they make arrangements and that and we want to uh, remember to pray for Margaret and Ernie as she's unwell. We want to just hold everyone, remember these people in our prayers and our and our thoughts. So let's just uh, spend some time in prayer. There is just something really powerful I think about corporate prayer. We um, come before before God and unite our hearts and our thoughts and our minds. So Lord, we just uh, come before you this morning and we just acknowledge. Uh, just the tremendous hurt that is out in the world. We think of uh, thousands of people that have been killed and millions that are maybe more or less that will be displaced from their homes in this conflict in Israel. God, we don't understand and we don't want to take sides or think that one side is more right than the other, but we just want to ask God that you would prevail, that you would bring peace to that, uh, to that uh, area of the world. We think of those that are suffering, Lord, with the loss of a loved one, uh, with the sickness of loved ones, and God, we just bring them before you. We just ask, God, that you would bring a peace that humanly is impossible, but with you, God, is is there, is there for us. So we just pray that you would um, just intercede in the queering family and in um, with Margaret and Ernie and their family, Lord, we just pray for healing for Margaret, we pray for peace, and God, we uh, just look to encourage them in every way we can. And Lord, there's different ministries that are starting up and ministries that have been going on for for years, and we just want to bring them before you, Lord. Uh, think of YFC, the work that they do in the schools and in the community, God, we just pray that you would um, just give Tyson and Cassie um, strength and energy pray that you would give them a passion and a vision and we pray lord that you would bring kids that would connect with them that they can build relationships with we think of the ministries that are in the church god we uh, just pray that you would bring people to to work to help out bring um just encourage the leaders and we uh, ask god that you would um, just bring kids um to kids connect we uh Pray that they would just hear from you and experience you in a, in a real way. We think of mums and talks. We just pray that it would be a good time of encouragement and building relationships with the mums. Um, and we think of Sunday school or kids, um, children's church, things like that, God. We just pray that you would uh, give the leaders um, just, yeah, a real desire and a, uh, an ability to connect with the kids and share your word with them. God, we pray all these things in your precious name. Amen. And kids can be dismissed for Children's Church. Out the back, Ron and Charlene are waiting. Thanks.
4: All right. Over the last couple of weeks, we have been doing something uh, a bit different I asked a number of people from our congregation, a number of people from our town who have either left or have just lived here their whole life, or people from outside of the country as well, and I asked them if they could hear a sermon on anything, what would they want to hear a sermon on, and today we're getting to the one that I am the most excited about, as can be told by the fact that we are doing it today, and then also uh, for three weeks in November. One chapter, one Sunday. And that is that we are going to talk about the book of Jonah. And the book of Jonah is a wonderful book to talk about. I'm told that the discussion in Sunday school went great. And the reason that it is a wonderful one to talk about when you get a bit older is because I think that for all of us, it was taught the same way when we were kids, right? It's the story about the big fish. It's the story for kids. But, wouldn't you know it, there is a whole lot more going on in this book than just that. So if you have your Bibles on you, now is the time to open them on up to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1 don't know where that is, it's after the book of Obadiah. If that does not help, even in the slightest, it means whenever there's a book and you don't know where it is, even in the slightest, I can guarantee you, it's about the 100 pages or so right before the New Testament starts. And that is the case with this one as well. Jonah chapter 1. And here I'm using the same Bible that I first read this book in when I was a teenager. This is an old Bible already. This is from the early thousands, and I'm going to tell you right now, I I have spent many an hour in here, so hopefully it sets us in a good place as far as talking about Jonah goes. So, Jonah chapter 1, if you are there... And there's we've already heard the whole thing read, so we're just going to kind of skim over it for the things that we find particularly notable. And we're going to start right there in the beginning. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come before me. Now, there's an awful lot going on there. First, Jonah, son of Amittai. He is an interesting prophet. He's one of the few that actually comes up in the book of Kings. Uh, He's about three-quarters of the way through it. He is under the king Jeroboam II. That doesn't matter at all if you remember that or not. More, it's important because Jonah is the prophet to the king of Israel right when there are people called the Assyrians, right there, the Assyrians. And in the eyes of Jonah, the Assyrians are just as wicked as wicked can be. We're going to come back to just what that means a little bit later and over the weeks to come. But at the same time, the Assyrians are just the worst. They are the people that you tell your kids, you better eat your vegetables or else the Assyrians are going to get you. They're that kind of bad. They're the kind of bad where they spoil books for you before you get to the end. They are the worst kind of people in the eyes of Jonah and the rest of the Israelites. And so when God says you are to go to them, you are to go to the Assyrians and then you are to tell them that they are wicked, that they need to come before me, repent, essentially, repent and come back to God. You are to go and tell them. But these Assyrians are so wicked that Jonah takes that to heart and he thinks about it a little bit. And he figures, nope, I got a better idea than that. I am going to go in exactly the opposite direction. And when I say the opposite direction, that I certainly mean. Depending on your translation, it's going to say that Jonah was asked by God to go up to Nineveh. It doesn't matter whether or not it does say that. It definitely implies. But uh, from here on out... We're going to see that Jonah is going to, instead of going up to Nineveh, he is going to go down. He is going to go down. He is going to go down. First, he goes down to the city of Joppa, which isn't in Israel anymore. It's kind of up where Turkey is. It's right on the Mediterranean. There's a bunch of sailors there. And then after that, he goes down into the boat. And then eventually, as we know, he goes down Farther from the boat, still. We're going to get to that in just a second. So he is running away from God in that way. He's running away from God also in a non figurative way, in that Nineveh is right in where modern Iraq is. And does anybody know where Tarshish is? Oh, David does. (laughs) Where is Tarshish? (laughs) It is in Spain. So, imagine here we are in Israel. Over here, that is, oh, I'm doing this backwards for you folk. Over here is where Iraq is, and Spain is all the way over there. That, that is where Tarshish is. That is where Jonah is trying to run away to. This is a period of time before navigation is really a thing, which means that they didn't really sail on the open oceans, which means that Tarshish is not just in Spain. It is literally at the end Of the world. You do not go farther west than Tarshish. And this is where Jonah is running away to. But it's even more than that, because if God is telling Jonah that he needs to go to Assyria, to go to Nineveh, And he is coming from the land of Israel. It's to be assumed that Jonah thinks that God is everywhere there. Because, well, I mean, that's where his temple is, farther down in Jerusalem. And obviously, if God's telling him that he can go to Nineveh, God is going to be there too. And so, where does Jonah go? He goes to Joppa, which is a city that is filled with people that do not know God one way or the other. It is a city that is not Israelite. It is a city that is filled with people that pray to their own gods, as we see in just a moment. There is no way, shape, or form that Jonah is not running away from God to the nth degree. All of the ways that we can think of, of if we want to run away from God, that is what Jonah is doing right here. And he's even doing it out of pocket because it says that he pays for the fare of the boat that ends up going off. And when it says pay for the fare, we're not talking that he buys a ticket. Passenger ships don't really exist then. He is paying for that boat that is a transport boat to just go. This is not cheap kind of shows that he has profit of the king, profit for the king, profit of the Lord money working on a little bit. But like, off he goes. And how do you think God takes that? Rather poorly. God does not really care for this one. As we can tell by the fact that immediately, there is... A storm, and not just a storm, but it is the worst storm that these seasoned sailors have ever seen before. We know that it is because they're freaking out, and seeing storms on the Mediterranean, that just kind of goes with the job, but they are praying to all of the gods that they know that they will not die. That is the kind of storm that this is. It is terrifying to them in every way, shape, and form. And then they figure there's one more guy on this boat. One more guy on this boat that should also be praying. We're going to go see him and see kind of how he is figuring. And so what happens, we read they go down one more time. They're below deck. They're below sea level at this point. And that is where Jonah is. And what is Jonah doing? Is he praying as he probably should be? He is a prophet after all. He's the kind of guy that you go to when things are bad so that he prays for you. And is he praying? No. <laughs> He's asleep. And immediately we get pictures in our minds of Gethsemane that comes many, many years after this where Jesus is praying with all that his heart and he asks his disciples that they should pray ceaselessly as well and what happens to them? They fall asleep and we get that kind of picture going in on our minds, we're going to see that there's actually a lot that guns bring us forward into the New Testament in this passage alone, as well as over the book. But Jonah is the one who's supposed to be the most in sync with God. Jonah is the one who is a prophet. Jonah is the one whose entire job is to tell people what it is that God is saying. He's the one whose entire job is to pray at the drop of a hat for everything so that the best possible outcomes come. That is what Jonah is supposed to do, and he is asleep in the belly of the boat. So understandably, the captain freaks out at this, because what are you doing? We are all going to die. Why are you asleep right now? To which he books it on board and then he figures that now is exactly the time where we should be figuring out the cause of this. Because this is clearly a storm that is unlike any other. This is the time where we want to figure out why this storm is so bad. And so they cast lots and immediately we also remember the New Testament Zechariah. that is why he goes into the middle of the temple right in the beginning of the book of Luke because they cast lots to determine what it is that God wants. You cast lots so that you can divine the will of God in different parts of the Bible and so you can come into his presence and know what he is doing and well, now they cast lots and God's like, this dude's your problem. Jonah, he is your problem. And so they confront him. And they ask him, what have you done? <laughs> and they pepper him with questions of all sorts. Who are you? What have you done? What are you? And there's five of them here, just rapid fire, one after another, after another, after another. And then finally, he answers. And he answers in a way that almost sounds just blasé to the whole thing. And that kind of is... Th- sums up Jonah in this part of the passage. When I think about Jonah and God, I kind of think of somebody whose dad told him that he is, you know, clean up your room. Now is the time to clean up. And he's like, how about instead I don't do that, and I take off to a party, and then his dad is going to that party to drag him back. That's how I read Jonah talking in this. He's blase about the fact that the, everyone around him is near death itself. And he tells them, when they ask, who are you? And he says, I'm a Hebrew, I am, and then he kind of chokes on his words a bit, I follow the God who created the land and the sea. That's <laughs> kind of how he says it. And I figure in exactly that moment, he realizes that perhaps taking off in a boat is not the greatest way to try to escape God. <laughs> As a prophet, probably he should know that saving God is not the greatest of ideas in the first place, but a boat... Maybe that was a bit dumb. And everybody that is on that boat with him very much thinks so, because they straight freak out, because obviously they freak out. And they ask, well, what are we going to do to stop this? To which he's like, well, if you toss me into the water, then it's all going to be okay. Notice he doesn't say at any point, if you turn the boat around and go back to Joppa so I can do what I'm supposed to do, then everything will be fine. He says... If you toss me in the water, if you literally kill me, because he has no reason at this point to think that God is going to save him, he literally would sooner die than do what it is that God is telling him to do. If you toss me in the water, it'll be fine. (laughs) To which, obviously, the sailors aren't a big fan of that. They're not a big fan of that because this is a God that has created a storm unlike any that they have ever seen before. This is a God that created the sea. And as we talked about last week, the sea is wild. It is wilderness. It is chaos embodied. There is nothing more powerful than the sea in the minds of the people from this time And so that this is the God that made it, and this is the God that at will can create a storm like that, obviously they're terrified, which means they don't really want to throw Jonah into the water because if this is a Hebrew, if this is somebody that follows that God, then maybe that would just anger him a little bit, killing one of his prophets. And so they try everything that they can do to not do that. They Row with all that they have in order to get back to shore. And that is saying something that that isn't working. This is a period of time before navigation, as I said. They don't sail out of eyeshot of the shore ever. (laughs) Because the moment you do that is the moment that you get lost to the waves. They are within eyeshot of the shore. And they cannot sail back to it. And finally... After hours of this, and it being obvious there is no other option, they pray to God, please don't hold this against us. They're very well aware at this point that Jonah is not an innocent man, but don't hold this against us. And then they toss him off into the drink. And immediately the storm stops. And so immediately the sailors just start sacrificing whatever they have to God. They make vows to him. They are now followers of our same God. And they are just ecstatic about it. Jonah was the one that was supposed to be in sync with God. But he is the least godly person on that boat. And Jonah is exactly where he wants to be at this place, he figures. He's gotten out of it. He doesn't need to go to Assyria. He is going to drown. Everything's going to be fine. But... No dice. For God sends a big fish and swallows him up. And he's in there for three days and for three nights before he is thrown up onto dry land. We'll get that next week. But at the same time, we see that foreshadowing of Jesus, who, while was not in a fish for three days and three nights, was in a place that presumably didn't smell quite so bad in his own grave to which he rose again. Come back to that in just a moment. That is the story so far in Jonah 1. Now, Jonah. As I mentioned before, this is an interesting one, uh, the book of Jonah as a whole. Because, like I said, I'm betting most of you, the first time you ever heard this, you heard it just as a kid's story. After all, there is literally a big fish in it, so it's a tall tale, something like that, right? This is a story that is for children, and I didn't come back to it for a long time. I think actually seminary was the first time that I actually looked into this book to any extent. They actually had me translate the whole thing. It was my first attempt at doing something like that, and it is not legible. it does not make sense, but did I do it, and did I get a passing grade? Possibly. But one thing I found when I went through that book of Jonah is, is that there is a lot going on there that we don't necessarily notice. The first thing is is that as you go through it, the more you realize it's a straight out comedy. It's a straight out comedy. I mean. Look at it for just a moment. Right in the beginning, a prophet of God decides that he is not going to listen to his God. His God, who he says is above all things, his God who is literally the creator of the waters and the land. Creator of all things. He's not going to listen to that God. Instead, he is going to go and do the exact opposite. He knows exactly how that's going to turn out. There's no way that it would turn out any way other than that. And yet, he runs away. He falls down instead of going up. He goes to people that he thinks don't know God one way or the other, and they come to know God seemingly better than he does. It is a comedy of errors that eventually ends him literally in the belly of a fish. It's funny. It's funny as you go through it. And it's supposed to be funny because the book of Jonah is a satire. It's poking fun at A particular way that people from the time that it was written understood themselves. It says up there, it was written long after Jonah lived. And we know that because, you know in the same way, if you ever opened like Shakespeare or something and you can't make heads or tails of it because it's talking like just nonsense these and those and pentameter and all of that. You stick with it long enough and you understand it. But when you first go into it, like what's going on? And then you read what's a great book from today, like, I don't know what Twilight popped into my mind. Not that. But you read a book from today, and, like, the phrasing is all different, and the words are all different. And it makes perfect sense because they talk like we talk. Hebrew does that, too. Hebrew does that, too. And books that are from a certain period of time and books that are from another period of time, hundreds of years later, don't sound alike. And you can actually tell the time that they come from by the language that's used. And so even though Jonah is a real guy, Jonah is in historical documents under Jeroboam II, who also is recorded, and the king of Assyria is also recorded. Like, Jonah is a real guy. This book that is about him is written hundreds of years later. And it's written during a time that is called the post-exile, in that the people from Israel eventually got conquered, we're gonna get to that, and then they went off, and then the people in Judah that are down there also get conquered, and they go off, and they come back. And the people, once they come back, they have a very particular way of understanding themselves. They have a very particular way of thinking about their role in things. And that is, is that they are kind of the point of everything. This isn't all the people that think like that, but some of the people in charge absolutely do. And you get that notion when you read through books like Joel. The people are pretty positive that they are the end purpose of what God is doing in the world. The people are pretty positive that they are the most important, that they are the reason for it all. And The book of Jonah takes that idea and kind of prods it a little bit to poke it to the right direction. And to get you to the point where you can kind of see this happening, let's look at this passage just quickly again and have a bit of an idea of what's going on. First off, who is it that God tells Jonah that he needs to go and to save? Right there in verse 1. It is the Assyrians who are in Nineveh. As I mentioned, the Assyrians are the ones that conquered Israel and didn't just conquer Israel. Every moment of the story of them conquering Israel would play out like a war crime today, like it is the worst of the worst what happens there. I want you, Jonah, to go to these people that are not just the wicked, but are the wickedest of the wicked Everybody that's reading this would have known exactly who the Assyrians are. They would have known exactly just what is being told to them by God. I want you to go to those people, and I want you to get them to repent. I want you to get them to follow me. That is what God is saying to Jonah. To which Jonah acts exactly like you would expect somebody that thinks that he is the end point of the entire game to act. He's like... I hear what you're saying, but clearly I know what God means better than he does. And he takes off. And every step along the way, God follows him. And every step along the way, he acts like he is the one that really is the point of it all. And yet, around him, everyone ends up coming to God. He is the one that is supposed to be the most in sync, as we said, and yet everyone else acts more godly than he does. To which eventually, what happens? He ends in the belly of a whale and he goes off. He listens to God and the people are saved. That is kind of what the point is. You might think of yourself as the end game. You might think of yourself as the most important, but God wants us to reach out to all people. Not just stay in our own little minds, not just stay in our own little places. This book clearly shows that God loves Jonah, clearly shows that God loves his people because he goes and pursues him to the ends of the literal earth, he pursues him. But in the end, we see that what it is that he wants Jonah to do is not just stay in our little lane, but instead, reach out to everybody. Now, as we mentioned before, there's a lot of foreshadowing to Jesus in here. And now's the time to probably mention that Jesus picked up on that too. <laughs> Matthew 12, verses 38 to 41. You can read that sometime. He there says that he is Jonah. He is the new Jonah. Jesus Compares himself to Jonah, except for he is Jonah as Jonah should have been. He's Jonah, but without all of the running away first. And he's Jonah as Jonah should be because you can see that in Jesus' ministry, can't you? Like, What does he do in his ministry? He's called to reach out on behalf of God to all of the world. And he does that. And then he also goes into the belly of the grave in the same way that Jonah goes into the belly of the fish. And he does that. Three days, three nights, he is in there. And then when he rises again, all of the world now has the ability to know who our God is in a way like never before. If only you Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. If only you follow him as he calls, you will know eternal life because of the actions of our God. He is reaching out not just to his own people. He is reaching out to everyone. Jesus is the new Jonah just Jonah as he should have been. And because of that, as disciples of Christ ourselves, people that are called to follow the Lord, people that are called to live according to what it is that he teaches, with every waking breath, we are called to be like Jonah as well. Unfortunately, that comes with a pretty steep cost. And that just... As in the book of Jonah, he reaches out to the wickedest of the wicked. Just as in Jonah, he reaches out to those that are outside of the in-group. Just as in Jonah, we see that God doesn't want us to just stay in our own lane, though he loves us truly, but we are supposed to get out there and show the entire world that God loves them too means that even those who are wicked in our own eyes, the book of Jonah is telling us we need to bring them into the fold too. And that is impossibly hard for us to take. Because we all know people that we just can't stand. We all know people who we think are the epitome of wickedness. We all know people that are those people that are outside of here. And we know that we're supposed to go out to them. We, we are told that in Scripture. We're told that in church. We know we're supposed to go out to them, but at the same time, We run away too, but we have devised a much more clever way of trying to run away than to go to the corners of the earth. We know that doesn't work. The book of Jonah tells us that doesn't work. We don't go out to the corners of the world to try to run away from God. We can do one better than that. We just come in here and we stay in here and we don't look past our own walls. That's what we do to run away from God. The church is not called to run away from God by retreating inside of these walls, though. The book of Jonah tells us that. The book of Jonah tells us that the point of it, though God loves us so very much, and we see that on every page of Scripture, the book of Jonah tells us that we are to build these walls out to the corners of the world itself. We are to build these walls out so that even the most wicked and the... People we put our nose in the air and we walk by, even the people we absolutely cannot stand, we're to build these walls out to the corners of the world so that they have a home here too, the same that we do. So that they are the chosen people, the same as we are. We are adopted into that same family that Jonah represents. We are a member of that same family, that's one of the main points of the book of Romans. Jesus himself says that in the book of John. We are adopted into that family and it is our job as those that are the chosen of God, our job as those who are loved by God to spread the church out to the corners, to build the kingdom out to the corners of the earth, so that even those that we think of as the most wicked know that they are loved by God too. So that if they just make that decision the same as we do, that they are followers of Christ, that they will find a home here. That is what the book of Jonah tells us. As the weeks go on, we're going to see just to the extent that that is what the book of Jonah tells. Tells us. And so it leaves us with this question as we go out to the rest of the world today Who is wicked in your eyes? Who are the people that you are running away from with everything that you are instead of sharing the love of God with? Who are those that when you walk by them you put your nose up in the air and figure you're not the right kind of people? for me to be associating with? We're those that, especially these days, we all have them. I mean, we just came off of an election. There are people that we absolutely are like, oh, you are wicked. Who are the ones that you need to realize God loves too? And once you have that in your mind, then... How are you going to build the church out to them this week? It's hard. It is terribly hard. If it wasn't, I think that the church would have conquered this entire spreading the church out to the corners of the earth thing 2,000 years ago. But we haven't, because it is hard. But how boring life would be if we were called to do something easy, so this week, that's what I task you with. This week, that's what we are tasked with from Jonah 1. Who is wicked in our eyes, and how are you going to build the church out to them this week? Who is it that you are running away from God instead of sharing his love with them? And how are you going to fix that?
0: Amen. Thanks for that challenge and encouragement, Russell. Part of our response can be this sense of surrendering to God, agreeing with him and doing his will. So let's sing I Surrender All.
2: Oh to Jesus
4: first a reminder, today at three o'clock at the care home is the care home service. I hope you can make it out. And for our benediction, we turn to the book of Philemon. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Go now and serve our wonderful God. All to Jesus I surrender,
2: Lord.